I don't know. We'll just see. But I don't intend for anything to go down other than just let someone know that uh, they don't just get to like bully me without consequence. I like it. Uh, kind of what I'm envisioning is like a, to catch a thief or to catch a predator, I guess. The Dateline thing mm-hmm. where they would yeah, invite, kinda, kinda. Invite, invite you to there. Well, Jim's joined us now. Jim's got the videography background. He could be your uh, your cameraman. Oh, Jim wow. doesn't know. Jim doesn't know the context of what we're discussing, though. So he's probably probably lost a little bit right now. I love the idea of Jim being there because his energy is so calm, and that would make it even kind of crazier. Like like I'm being calm, he's being calm, and the person I'm confronting is just like, what is even happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> We'll fill you in on the back end, Jim, about what we're talking about. Okay, I was I was wondering what I'm volunteered <laughs> for. I can tell you. Conscripted really, is more like. Yeah, let me tell you what it is, just real quick, so you're not completely weirded out. Um, there is someone. <laughs> there's someone I may need to confront for a kind of weird. Let's just say a weird online bullying. I think I know it is. I don't know for sure, but in my mind, why not go knock on his front door and ask? And then we made the kind of joke kind of not a joke that you could be there and film it so anyway <laughs> that, that that's just the brief story it could be hidden camera um but yeah the, there is that uh theory that ted talked about have a coffee with anybody who doesn't like you and um and after the cup of coffee um you'll probably find your own humanity in both you know in both people's perspectives so I think it's a great and bold and, and I wish more people would do that. Just uh, make sure they don't have a gun when you show up. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not above running away, but uh, I've often found confrontation to be helpful in my life. And I, I don't mean like, you know, not like wild Swiss fi- uh, fist swinging um, <laughs> confrontation, but uh, like I, I sometimes I look back and I'm like, man, some of the stuff I was doing when I was young is crazy. Like, I don't think I've ever told any of you this story, but there was uh, a guy in my high school who, like, my stepsister had gone to a concert. And where I grew up, it was really normal to flash your boobs at concerts. Like, it that didn't mean anything about you or about the situation. That was just, like, almost standard. And I've done it, like, once uh anyways some some women do and girls do it a lot but anyway so she did it and this guy went to high school with snapped a photo so we're talking about year 2002 and he was showing you know it's like paper photo you know this is old school and um and he's showing it to classmates and a rumor got around and she heard about it and she was really upset and embarrassed so then i used i had kind of sort of a permanent hall pass as a newspaper editor so like I used that to pull him out of class under the pretense of newspaper yearbook or something. And uh, then I talked to him in the hallway that he needed to stop doing that. And he was, I was really like nice and responsible about it, but he was the look on his face, but you, you better believe he stopped it. So I'm not above that. Well, I think that's a great way to start today's show. Welcome, everyone, to the No Name Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner. I'm joined by Dustin Gavalo and Dr. Ellie Shockley. Special guest today joining us, Jim. Hey, Jim. 
this is our check-in moment. It's been a couple of weeks for me since I've been a part of this podcast. Was traveling in in and around the country the last well last month almost. Was in Texas last last week this time, and uh, was visiting family. So the first time that we went, went back to see my wife's family since the pandemic hit, and uh, it was nice. It's nice to get back. Nice to travel. Um, they're still making everyone wear masks in the airport, but other than that, no one's wearing masks, it seemed like, um, out and about at least. Went to a lot of restaurants. Um, I guess my wife's family is a restaurant family, and uh, the kids loved it. The kids were back in heaven. They they wanted to go to, to a restaurant every, every time they could get a chance to, after basically not going to restaurants in the last 15 months or so. Uh, they were very, very much in favor of it. The one night my my wife tried to cook, or she did cook, the kids were very disappointed because it meant one less time at the restaurant, and uh, mm. they threw a little bit of a fit. But uh, it was nice. We went to uh, Chuck E. Cheese, and uh, it was fun. I enjoyed I enjoyed Chuck E. Cheese. They don't have the the mechanized uh, family of mice, I guess, or I don't even know who those people were. It's just all games, fun and games, and. Uh, if I had about 20 more minutes, I would have set the record on the Papa shot. I'm pretty sure. I was just getting into a groove <laughs> and uh, and our time ran out on our card, but I was I was smoking. It was it was it was pretty nice. I really hit a good groove on that Papa shot. But other than that, um, just getting back into the swing of summer. Um, the kids are finally out of the house, I guess, most days now, starting on Monday. And uh, they're excited, I'm excited. And it's good to be back in a pseudo-normal schedule routine, pre-pandemic, pre-everything-changed kind of mindset. Looking forward to the rest of the summer and uh, glad to be here with y'all folks. How how the rest of y'all's weeks go? Um, what do you guys like to say for check-in here? We'll get started on a couple topics. I already shared a lot, so you guys go. <laughs> well, my week uh, was basically uh, re recovering from the second Pfizer shot and trying to get a little bit of work done, which was not very productive. But I've been uh, still working on uh, my my uh, scorecard for the this session and uh, got 39 bills on that scorecard, and I'm trying to come up with the best formula to to uh, uh give a score to them that is both fair and accurate at the same time and those two things are not necessarily uh compatible when it comes to scorecards <laughs> oh that reminds me i was going to think about that math today a little bit so yeah i'm going to do that yeah i've been playing i've probably gone through uh six different models uh just in in excel trying to come up with with a formula that works um, without uh, the, the challenge is coming up with a, a formula that works that does not skew things in a way that is unfair. Uh, I'm trying to to balance my priority with the viability of the of the bills versus other factors and and uh it's definitely I, I i haven't usually i just do a straightforward score you know a lost cause bill is worth just as much as a as a slam dunk bill but i've i came to the conclusion that that's 
also not exactly uh, the most accurate way to do it. So working on uh, coming up with uh, uh, a better uh, mousetrap for them. <laughs> I think your idea of waiting makes a lot of sense. You know, overweight the cases where the bill really had a damn shot, you know, totally. Um, and I think it's just... I don't know. I don't know what's up. I, I run into problems like yours. And sometimes it's like a simple fix that just didn't occur to me. Like I have to subtract something from one or something like that. And I'm like, oops, forgot about that principle of math. So um, yeah, I'm going to think a bit more about that. I, uh, you know, I like uh, scorecards. Yeah. And the, the, the version that I had sent you, the problem with that was it ended up punishing legislators for voting my way and that obviously doesn't make any sense so the the one after that i i gave them the the raw score where they were getting points for the lost causes just as much as for the slam dunks and then adding that to the weighted score to come up with a hybrid and that came up with a uh the the list the spectrum of of legislators shaked out about 85 percent where i thought they would and and so basically it's it's not that i'm trying to come to a preconceived result but at the same time if there is a lot of funkiness with the the result it's not going to be taken seriously either so there's a balance between um uh stacking the deck and and you know not putting any uh analysis or any any uh, balance into your arbitrariness and and there's a there's some happy medium in there that i'm still trying to f to find basically well dustin uh i'm interested in, in what you come up with with um sounds like you're trying to create a metric for political capital so um you know some, something that's going to pass no matter what someone votes requires little political capital one way or the other. If it's a closer vote, then it, you, you kind of take a chance with your political capital one way or the other. So is that kind of your thought process is that if it's a close vote, they should be weighted more for taking the principled stand versus if it was a lost cause and they just made a principled stand that no one will ever talk about ever again. Yeah, um, well, the one thing that I discovered it and 39 bills is the largest list that I've ever had. I think in 2017, I did 19. Um, but with 39, it, it's one of those cases where more data doesn't necessarily make it easier because there's, there's a certain, there's a certain point where things dilute on one end or the other. And, and the fact is that I did not realize how, how many of my, the bills that I work on are either lost causes or slam dunks. And that there's only like, I mean, out of 39 bills, there's literally only six that were within 10 votes one way or the other. Uh, so there's not a lot of actual marginal, uh, marginal difference, marginal value bills that I deal with because it's either they have to vote for it on their own or it, it you know it, it's got no chance and so you know kind of one thing that i've got to do is go in and all the all the various uh, votes for the coal bailout bills you know they had 
there's an initial vote and then there's a second vote and then there's a concurring vote. And I think I've got to limit the whole uh, point value of the category of the coal bailout bills so that it's not artificially um, give one set, a set of legislators a better or worse grade than they deserve um, because they're they're not necessarily the people that voted against those aren't necessarily voting against them for the same reasons that I was against them. So I've got to somehow uh, factor that in and, you know, and, and maybe I'm trying to be too cute with it. I don't know. We'll see what happens when I finally come up with a, a strategy. But, um, you know, it's it's going to look it right now. The the uh, formula looks a lot like the how you figure out your property taxes. <laughs> so what does that say about um, your logic or the, the way you your perspective and the way you've been approaching politics that your majority of the bills are either lost causes or slam dunks. Well, it, what, what it says is that, okay, so, so f for instance, the, the closest votes that I testified on and, and there was, it was within a margin where I could have had an influence was the catalytic converter bill and the Uber tax bill. Their Uber airport tax bill, neither one of which I was testifying from an ideological standpoint. I was testifying uh, from a from a practical user base standpoint. And and so, uh, you know, I thought that I was being more selective this session than than usual. Uh, and I guess I was. I mean, the one thing that I've discovered is that uh, a, a bill that I testified no on is almost twice as likely to fail as a bill that I, as a bill that I testify yes on is to pass. Um, so my, but the ones that I vote no, or that I testify no on are also the ones that didn't have a chance either. So whether my, it, it really is uh, a question of whether I, I, I'm I'm better at picking the where my stance will match the chamber's stance, in, especially in the House. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I, I move the needle one way or the other. So, um, you know, I guess it t it tells me that that I I do know the sentiment of the chamber better than I used to, but that my issues don't still are either are, are pretty much predetermined for the most part and I, you know, 88% of the time, basically. <laughs> Does that mean that your efforts are ineffective or that your efforts do add, it just generally tends to add more support and help to the conservatives uh, and the mentality that's dominating? I think that, it means that I am spending a lot of time on bills that um, that my involvement is irrelevant, and it and I don't know that that is a a metric of effectiveness. That's just that's a that's a metric of 
the bills that I'm picking to put my time into. So, um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, that's, that's a, that's another fine line situation, but, uh, you know, what's, what is interesting is that, um, you know, depending on, on how I, I, you know, grade them, whether on an absolute raw vote basis or, or on a weighted basis, it completely changes the, 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 uh, the order that people are in. I mean, it, it, um, it almost flips things heads to tails. And so, uh, that, that's why one of the reasons why, um, like in one, one of the permutations of, of my, uh, of my weighted system early on uh, was ended up with Rick Becker at the tail end of the Bastiats rather than at the top of the Bastiats, which would have been an interesting headline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and doesn't line up with previous um, scorecard outcome. Right. Um, yeah, and wondering... and. Sorry, yeah. I, I was going to say, and because of, uh, and that was because of the way that I was weighting it in that, in, in that I would, by giving too much value to the, 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 the agreement between my position and the chamber's end result, it was actually punishing them for agreeing with me because of the way that the dynamics of the slam dunk versus lost cause bills are. So, uh, yeah, it, and and so, it, there there's a there's a fine line between, uh, like I said, stacking the deck and 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 being too arbitrary. Do you think that um, in order for the report card to really capture what you'd like to capture, you should um, exclude a variety of slam dunks and focus on the. Um, I mean, like, what if the upper end of that scale is bills that are hypothetically winnable, uh, not necessarily favored, so, you know, because that's where we want to push, right? We want to find that tension point where we're not preaching to the choir and we're not throwing our time into a black hole. We're actually mm -hmm. pushing up against where that push can go from 40% to 60% because of our collective effort or something. And so if you kind of cut off the uh, epic, obvious chamber wins or whatever, do, would the instrument better capture what you're going for? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking of doing something like that by, by uh, dividing out... Um, the bills that I, I personally testified on versus those that I uh, submitted written testimony on, but did not personally testify on versus those that I simply were, was watching, expecting them to go a certain way, like a three tiered. And, and, and so right now I've got two, you know, a one or two on my priority uh, scale, but maybe having a, a one, two, three, and then mixing in the other factors uh, and then having the score one set of scores for for bills that i i were top priority and and then moving on down um so yeah i'm still working on it 
I, I'm putting a lot more uh, a thought into this one than, than previous ones that I've done in 07, 09, uh, 13, and 17. I think I, I had been just brainstorming now or a couple minutes ago, actually, a potential formula, but I don't think it would address your issues because it's still relying on kind of the same inputs, but just to share it because it might help shape your thinking in some ways. I was thinking about really simplifying the approach and basically having every bill that you decide to include have like two variables. There's importance and you can, you know, it can be the, the lower half and the higher half. It could just be binary, lower or mm -hmm. higher importance. And then winnability, lower and higher winnability. And then the points assigned to having voted the right way on each one can vary. Uh, so if you don't buy, vote the right way, you get zero. And if you vote right. the right way, depending on how you want to fill out those four cells, it could be one, two, or three points. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that you still might need, I don't know that that works until you exclude some of the cases that are really screwing up the effect you know is out there that you're trying to capture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and there are like, you know, I threw a bone to the Dems on on the, the uh, creating a federal, uh, uh, it, creating a state earned income tax credit equal to the federal tax earned income tax credit, uh, which is an issue that I've always opposed. But this year, because of I also put in a bill that, or I also included a bill that um, uh, that Jim Casper put in that that would allow. Uh, a, a tax credit equal to costs related to uh, or, or exempting exempting any benefits that a person gets from uh, COVID-19 type of, of benefits like the unemployment, that being exempt from state income tax. Now, that ended up being exempt because the, the feds exempted it retroactively, uh, which is why he, that bill of his failed, I think. But... Uh, you know, so I was trying to be, I, I was trying to actually with that, give them a bone, but, but that didn't necessarily help the situation. And so, you know, I, 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 I've been going on and on about it, but, uh, uh, it eventually I'll, I'll come to something here in the next day or two <laughs> that, that makes sense. This is the trouble when non-math majors try to do math. And, and if, if I did not have Excel, I'd be basically a functionally illiterate when it comes to math. <laughs> I mean, that's why you should team up with math majors, but believe me, they do not have it all figured out. They would be like, why don't you just accept a first formula? They'd be like, well, <laughs> and then they would like disregard the, well, except for those really savvy ones who might do computational neuroscience, they know that your brain is doing a different kind of math that is telling you this output isn't correct. And, and that's the kind of math that's harder to capture and involves a lot of, you know, complex networks. So anyways, the math in your brain is saying it's not shaking out right because you know you're trying to get at something else. But mm -hmm. a simple math major might not believe that and just tell you to stay with your original model. Yeah. <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. Jim, how'd your week go? So... Um, it was good. It was, 
it was full swing, hot summer, uh, a good week. <laughs> and I uh, had a lot of conversations with a lot of people who were really confused and inspired about um, North Dakota's goal to go zero carbon zero by 2030. And they were saying, wow, this is amazing. But wait, this is super confusing. How are they going to do it and keep burning all the stuff that we're burning? Um, and so it's a really in- interesting time. It would be, and I'm thinking of your your whole chart and grading system, it would be really neat to start a grading and tracking uh, this 2030 goal and figuring out how close we're actually coming to meeting it uh, with real carbon reduction, act- actual carbon reduction. You know, that would be a great, uh, so then at least the state can have a thermometer and to be able to track and know how on target they're ever going to be or off target and how much they need to ramp it up. Um, so you might be onto something there with these grades. We, We could do a different sort of grade in real time. Yeah, Jim, I think what would be so the interesting thing about the, the thing about this 2030 goal is that there is some uh, disagreement over what it actually is. It's it, From what I have heard, it's not the overall economy in North Dakota. It is the state of North Dakota's uh, impact of, you know, buildings and contracts and, and things like that, what they – they're involved in. So they're essentially, after all this trying to um, eliminate the state's involvement in ESG, essentially, it's going to put the state in the business of making its own decisions based on its own ESG formula. Yeah. So, Jim, what I was going to say is that um, if that is what the goal is, I guess, and I'm I'm with Dustin, it was confusing originally what exactly the goal was other than carbon neutrality itself is a very kind of nuanced uh, idea. Um, but if it's just the state government's um, carbon exposure uh, and going and neutralizing that to, a, to an extent, then I think what would be cool, Jim, is that uh, if we were able to put together a team of academics and industry experts, to come up with a report for the state to show them how they could get the carbon neutral by 2030 and actually, you know, recontrol the, the narrative on this. Cause right now it's going to be whatever the government, the governor says is, is how they're going to get there. But if there was actually a, a separate document with uh, objective third party um, involvement that said, Hey, this is exactly how the state can get to the carbon neutral by 2030. Here's a set of five policy objectives. Uh, that would be pretty cool. It would be a way to kind of wrest away the the narrative from the from the the governor and the state government, and say, hey, why don't we think about this stuff? So I don't know if um, if that's something with, that's in our wheelhouse or how easy that is to put together. But that would be a cool project to work on because um, right now it's going to be whatever they want it to be. It's it's such a vague goal that they can they can do almost anything they want from the the rhetorical side, and um, that kind of does. Uh, ties into one something I want I saw this week that came up from the from the governor's mouth um, two things the first thing was that uh, he said boy wouldn't it be nice if uh, we had some fresh faces on this clean sustainable energy authority we just created which uh, yeah yeah it would Doug <laughs> those those act those exact words were said to him uh, and his representatives multiple times throughout the, the session and um, so obviously 
he likes to say it out loud after the fact, but uh, when it was um, when he had influence to actually change the law, he didn't want to codify that um, and put it into the law. There was a way to have fresh faces on there, guaranteed uh, after he's out out the door, from, you know, in, in the law. He didn't want to do that. Uh, the other, <laughs> so he's playing both sides again. The other thing I saw was in the Jeff Simon's uh, newsletter that came out. It, it mentioned that the governor said he wants fresh fresh, fresh faces. But it also further clarified what it, what he meant by fresh faces, and apparently what he means is uh, private industry that has a, a pre-existing relationship with EERC. So that's this idea of fresh faces <laughs> is uh, why don't we get the the buddies of the people that are going to get most of this money anyways, and and put them on the board, and then it will be so much easier to get funding to EERC. Uh, so that point, that point of clarification was not in the Tribune story. And I, I guess I haven't double checked whether Jeff Simon's newsletter um, actually, whether he actually said that or that's just kind of the understanding, but um, that's crazy. That's crazy that he said that, <laughs> I think. Yeah, it definitely is is an odd thing to say. And so so basically all it it's not the 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 entities that are the fresh faces that they want. It's just different PR reps. Right. It's different. Uh, <laughs> different people but saying the same stuff or, you know, different delegates. Right. Yeah. But like calling it fresh faces is Orwellian. Like I, <laughs> I just I I am really I'm really in this like everything's Orwellian phase like it just it's so <laughs> crazy to me and I can't do it I can't pretend that the growth of government is conservative and I can't pretend that like words themselves are inherently <laughs> progressive without action and I can't accept that fresh faces are the same old same old like it's just and I just, I just wish, can we help other people see the Orwellian communication? Can we help? Because I think a lot of people are just persuaded by it and it's everywhere. I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question, Ellie. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. But yeah, I mean, unless you're paying attention, it does sound, it sounds good. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, whatever sounds good is what is getting said. And uh the, the match to reality is never followed up followed up upon or commented upon in the um, in the same way that the uh, the original statement is is reported upon. And uh, as you were saying, the the growth of government isn't isn't a conservative ideal. Uh, it reminded me of something I told Dustin. I think a couple our last uh, in person podcast that makes a lot of sense if it, if it's just the state government that wants to to lower their carbon footprint to get to carbon neutral four day work week you are 20% of your your um, your building expenses and building um, carbon exposure you could put away in in uh, one fail swoop just by going to work four days out of the week and, uh, okay. and there's less well, government Ryan well, <laughs> let's, have less let's government. just clarify let's just clarify Ryan though okay so that would mean shut down the capitals on Friday, I guess. Shut down the capital on Fridays. I mean, Friday's that... off, baby. Okay, Friday's so, off. so what about those? Weekends. What about those agencies though that have to operate 
on Fridays, if not all days of the week in some level. I mean, do you, can you still get an, like an energy savings? Cause like, I think, um, I think it would be tough because so many agencies have to work on a Friday, like especially agencies that interact with the public. If you think about it this way, the public demands that the government be available to them on Fridays. So you can't just so easily shut it down. And so how do you, I mean, people will be miffed if, you know, they can't, I'm, I'm serious. Like, I, I don't know if people realize how much, how many angry people state government processes every day, just because a lot of people out there are really angry, but, um, and they have real needs too. Then there's people with real needs that aren't being met. So I think Fridays, there needs to be some kind of intake mechanism. And I hear you that it could maybe, you know, a very strategically uh, implemented work from rigorous work from home plan on Fridays for some workers could be the solution, but it's not so simple. You have to really engineer something to get that energy savings, because I think it, the Capitol is like this giant building, and on some level, um, if anyone's there, then do that. You know, if anyone's working on Friday, then they probably need to make some food available, and you know, it kind of scales up all these costs that you guys are better at economics than me. But you know what I'm talking about? This type of costs that are a lot to just get started, and then at and then they scale better and better over time. Well, on a Friday, like that could scale really poorly, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, so from a building to building perspective, you'd have to optimize the building operation um, on the ground. So I don't think you could put that into law. That's just, um, you know, a culture of energy con conservation and efficiency that uh, doesn't exist right now to, to help those buildings run more efficiently on a day to day basis, hour to hour, minute to minute basis. So that would be a component of the, you know, a recommendation for the state would be like, hey, you got to take a look at the way you operate your buildings for sure. So what I'm saying is that, um, you know, the non-emergency um, services, you know, the non-essential um, services that the state provides can just be not available on Fridays. And uh, I think people will, people, now, Ryan. will <laughs> people will adjust. Ryan, so when you say Ford work, you mean converting from five eights to four tens or going to a 32 hour week? I, I say you're not I think saving. that if you if you go to a 32 hour if if you go into a 32 hour week and reducing FTEs, you might actually be able to get Bastiat's behind this. <laughs> well, yeah. So it it would be a department by department's um, you know uh, calculation. So certain departments it wouldn't work so well. I think you'd have to have some optionality to change um, you know to adjust as needed because I don't know how each department works. But if it's just a, a you know a paper pushing number crunching department, uh, yeah, uh, you, <laughs> I think you could you could push them down hours, and you still get the same amount of work product out of them uh, in fewer days. I think though, like let's keep in mind again, citizens are going to demand services beyond just emergency services on Fridays. Like it's it's baked into an entire national culture that Friday is a day you can get things. So yeah. I just. I find I, it very hard to imagine the public accepting only emergency services on Fridays. Uh, there, there will be some angry people, sure. Like you, a maybe. lot of them for a long time. <laughs> like, like oh my God, people are so upset about change. Like it's just, and things you wouldn't even know that would be that big of a deal. So I don't, D Dustin, do, am, am I making sense? Do you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> You're making sense on the pragmatics level. My my retort would be that uh, if we want to get 
government out of people's lives, we got to start somewhere and yeah. people Friday. shouldn't expect it every day of the week. Like it, 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 if we, it, it, this would be a really good way to call out the bluffs, the bluffers on, on small government, because if, if you are, if you really want government out of people's lives, then it shouldn't be there whenever people want it to be there. I mean, by definition. And so uh, this would be a really good way to, to call out the hypocrites. <laughs> so I, I hear what you're saying, but here's the problem I see. First of all, I think a big part of the demand on government honestly comes from our cultural, technological, and economic shift to immediacy and like the like no delay of gratification or, or satisfaction of needs. So like the way that people just email each other with impunity and expect like really rapid responses, like the way that students right. treat professors about how, you know, you should have gotten back to me at 11 p.m. when I just emailed you. Like that kind of attitude I think is showing up in government. But then here's what I would worry about. Yeah, I would not mind like a certain arrangement with government where the workers have more work-life balance because they're not expected to keep up with these unreasonable demands. But then I feel that it could be a snowball effect where people say, government's not meeting my needs. It's not doing its work because people remain entitled. And then that is used to demonize and destroy government that I personally would like to maintain. Like, I do want to live in a society. I do want there to be a reasonable degree of social net for serious situations. And I just don't want government to completely collapse. But if people think that it performs horribly, but the truth is it's just only resource at a certain level and you can only expect so much from a given amount of resource. Like I find that really toxic and I find that a lot of people think government is terrible because it's just not funded very well. And I do, there is plenty of waste. I have a lot of thoughts on what is waste and why. And for me, the, a lot of the waste is uh, it's not on the workers. So um, in any case, those are my concerns about feeding the myth that government sucks at doing its job because of it even performing at a lower level with reduced hours. So, yeah. so for this to work, there has to be a commiserate 20% reduction in the need for the public to interact with government, which means a 20% reduction in regulations, 20% reduction in paperwork and forms. You, it, for this to work, you have to reduce the, the, the government's requirement for the people to interact with government at the same level as you are reducing the people's ability to interact with government abolish so, paperwork abolish paperwork oh my god paperwork is the worst i would i would love like that would be like top top five accomplishments to to eliminate the paperwork of bureaucracy because we do torture people we really do and it's and it wastes time and money uh both private and public mm -hmm. yeah so so this comes down to the old uh for every new law put on the books we got to get rid of three or four of them to, to offset it we, we really would for to to like i said to, to reduce the public's demand on government we have to reduce the government's demand on the public yeah well i mean there's lots of um like ellie was talking about paperwork i know the tax department's like a year behind doing their work <laughs> they're like a full year behind and they had COVID and stuff but you know that still it was um they're behind. Lots of lots of agencies are behind in, in what their workflow um, requires of them. So if there was a way to limit their actual 
bureaucracy at the same time that we're actually cutting a day away. Uh, I think that would be a really interesting discussion to have um, to, to dive a little deeper into why uh, taking Fridays off would help. Um, it wouldn't be it would be more than just the building operations, which would be one component, but it would be people not driving to work. So, you know, if if that's part of their their calculations, like all the people that drive to work and that, you know, that carbon getting emitted as a part of the requirements of that they must meet as employees of the state. And if you remove that from the equation, you know, if that, that's part of the equation. And if you remove it, that's that's a huge win as well. To me, Ellie, there, there's a left argument for a four day work week, which was we're working too much already. And so if we could get the state government on a four day work week, we can get the rest of private industry to move in that direction as well. <laughs> And uh, and as you as you work less, as you as there's less work requirements, I think your carbon uh, emissions do can go down as well. So it's 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 the um, it's the idea of what's what is sustainability from an economic standpoint. Um, maybe if we worked less, we would be more sustainable, um, have a more sustainable growth model, and uh, and be able to lower the ex the exposure of of carbon in the atmosphere. Live better, you know, more quality, high, higher quality lives because there's less work and there's more life and less work, and uh, and then help the environment at the same time. So it, ha it has this kind of p potential for a synergistic kind of way to move into the future where everyone's taken care of. Yeah, we're not working as much, and it helps the environment, helps everybody. So that's where I, I like it. The idea is a, is a is a you know because <laughs> I worked at an insurance company, mm -hmm. and uh, let me tell you, nothing happens uh, on a Friday. Nothing. Zip zip happens on Fridays. Everyone's ready to leave. Um, you know, you, you call someone for something, and they're like, "Yeah, we'll get to it on Monday." You know, so I know that in in, in lots of private industries, Friday is just kind of the slough off day, anyways. Nothing's already happening on Fridays, and uh, we could easily remove yeah. it from the work week and still get the same amount of work done because the 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 trick is that if you have a certain amount of time to do something in, you're almost always going to take that exact amount of time. So if you limit it a little bit, you can still do it. You just got to work a little harder in a small amount of time. And for I most things, you can do that. You know, obviously, emergency services and certain job um, requirements, it, it won't work. But for like I a bureaucracy type work, I like think it's perfect. I hear what you're saying, but in government and underfunded government, I should say, or underfunded public services and public sector work, and in academia, Friday is a major productivity day because we had stupid meetings like Monday through Thursday. Like it's <laughs> it's for real. And so it's, it's that's a real day. It's a it's like a calming, leave me alone day. And my boss actually has a policy of like not making meetings on Fridays unless it's a really special circumstance. And she enforces it not just, you know, downward like a supervisor would, but upward. Like she she doesn't let her supervisors uh, make her go to meetings on Fridays. It's brilliant. But um, that's we get kind of uh, because we run out of time based on what's right. uh, placed in terms of demand on us. But I, I, I'm with you. I think people should work less. I think for some jobs, 36 hours could be good. Um, I think that to me, that's kind of like getting something on a Friday and then starting the weekend early, I think is kind of natural and healthy for a lot of people. And I think other people just have to work less for like small disability reasons that we are not very good right. at identifying. Yeah. I, you know, I like the idea of reducing the need to interact with government in a variety of ways. There are people though, who have problems round the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's a, a lot of people living in poverty. Uh, and then there's people who, okay, there was a point in my life when I was just so trapped by Monday through Friday that I couldn't get my own life done because the, a lot of other things were only open Monday through Friday. 
So it, it gets kind of tricky when, um, let's say you're able to negotiate a little flexibility on Fridays with your boss. So you can go to the doctors, but then the doctors not. Oh wait, that's not government. But I mean, if your idea of Friday sort of getting sloughed off <laughs> officially in our society, <laughs> I, I think that like, I mean, I think we can get around that by having more appointments be remote. You know, it depends on why you're seeing the doctor. Are you there to talk about uh, something? Or are you there to draw blood? And so I think there's technological advances that can help us out. But I think it's just really tough when, when days to get services and supports as a working person are elusive to begin with because you have a very rigid schedule like to actually have fewer opportunities to get your needs met can be really hard on a lot of working people who are working you know 50 hours a week right exactly. I, I think that in, in in the overall market um if such a thing were to happen you'd see a lot more evening hours uh like when I was in college, one of the business plan ideas that I wrote for business class was to have a, a mechanic shop that didn't even open until 1 p.m. and then stay open till 1 a.m. And, and because that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of gearheads like that schedule anyway. Uh, and so it's perfect for both the people doing the work and it's perfect for the working people that can't get their car to the shop until lunchtime. And, and they drop it off at lunch and they go back to work and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and so, so we, so what we've got here, we've got the work week reduction act, we've got the regulation reduction act, the paperwork reduction act and the meeting reduction act. So, <laughs> so this is quite an agenda that we've got to come up with. Oh, that reminds me. I wanted to tell you guys two reasons that excessive paperwork or the electronic counterpart exists in my experience. Number one, it either exists because demand is exceeding what you're able to deliver and you need some system to manage demand. And sometimes that means making it hard for people to make their needs known. And then the other reason is to obscure incompetence. So like two very radically different situations have the same tool. It's crazy. So for me, I actually try to avoid bureaucracy when possible, but then if things get really crazy, then I start to impose it. So I'm pretty free flowing with people's requests of my time and service on my job if things are manageable and then things get nuts. I'm like, get in line, folks. And then on the other hand, I've had colleagues, uh, you know, in similar kinds of positions that built a fortress of submissions and uh you know registration or you know of a of a request and it was just to sort of like slow down the the evidence that the person wasn't getting the work done so that's a funny thing and you know so i i like mechanisms in place that help manage a large amount of demand but i also am interested in revealing like you know non-compliant like borderline fraud like not doing the work you need to be doing yeah i think that's interesting well government's really good at promoting that's the trouble that government has is that it 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 is viewed by the public as uh uh, promoting incompetence at a higher level, you know, following the Peter principle to the T, you know, people get it promoted to their highest level of incompetence or, or you know, where or their highest level of competency. So they, they get, they're competent to level five of 10. So they get put to six 
and their competence and, and effectiveness goes to the floor and then government has to hire somebody else to, to fill in the gap. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of that. And, um, uh, you know, the people's perception of government is all obviously based on two things, post office and DMV. Because, you know, outside of the post office and DMV, the average person doesn't interact with government that much, really. You know, you know tax time, yeah. But on a, on a regular day-to-day basis, you know, the 10% of the population is taking 90% of government's time. Yeah, and I, 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 oh, I was ahead, just gonna say I think it depends on whether you're talking about federal specifically or other kinds of government, and I think you're, it also depends on what kind of terrain people are living on. Because, well, I just think that like uh, smaller levels of government, like non-federal level levels of government, well, federal too, but are pervasive in North Dakota and, and supporting people's daily lives, and at a certain scale because of the rural nature of some of the communities. I mean, like rural living is inefficient in a particular way of defining efficiency. So I think that there is more saturation of government presence in rural communities that survive and they'll just completely collapse. Because I mean, sure, we could just, I'm sure there are rural communities that there's not government services and uh, resources, I suppose. Um, Anyways, yeah, Ryan, what did you want to say? I was going to contrast that between private uh, industry and and public services because I think the the Peter principle works in both areas to a to a, but a, to a different um, extent. And it seems in private industry a lot of the time, the paperwork is 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 make work. It's work that um, the boss makes his underlings do uh, to make himself feel more important. Uh, but it's not important work. <laughs> it makes him, it has a social function, which makes him, because he's got all these assistants doing stuff, writing reports, filling, filling, checking boxes, uh, you know, making things look like are, they're happening, but they're actually not doing anything for the company. And so there's a lot of, we have this idea that you know, private industry and competition creates efficiency, but in my experience, there's not that much efficient. There's a lot of mediocre, mediocrity within private industry based on the, the bureaucracy that's kind of been um, implemented and then never goes away um, throughout the, the cycle of whatever the product is that you're producing. And uh, in government, it's, there's a different, different um, context and flavor of, of the, the Peter principle at play, but it's, it's in private industry as well. And um, uh, sometimes it's hard to, <laughs> It's hard to to go and tell somebody that you could you could you know you could do without all this administrative help if you just did it yourself because um, a lot of executives don't want to do any of the work um, that's why they get assistance and it, you know it's interesting um, if you look at the 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 raising costs of um, secondary education colleges universities almost all all the the things that uh, you know have increased in the operational budget of a college is administrative help. Um, whether that's mm-hmm. uh, administrative assistant or just ad- administration, whatever that entails. But the the professors aren't getting rich, <laughs> uh, but everyone else uh, is getting more and more jobs built up around the idea of teaching to students and the students have to foot the bill. So what, where's all that cost going to? Um, it's going to the bureaucracy of, of running a college. And uh, which, which, let me just say, is substantially related to federal regulations and the expectations that grow out of federal regulations. Like we, like 
uh, higher ed is so mega regulated. And, you know, some of it I am very supportive of. There are good things, but a lot of it is very burdensome. And, uh, you know, even if some, something can be both so good or selectively good and burdensome. Um, <laughs> and then there's the accreditation process, which has gotten really, Absurd. really intense. And that is related <laughs> to federal regulations as well. And so, you know, there are things like requiring, like jumping through the hoops that HLC requires for accreditation at this point does require multiple FTEs on a campus in and of itself. So, right. I mean, just keep that in mind that, and so I think people a lot of times act like there's some goofy conspiracy or whatever. And it's like, no, there is literally that much work to do. There actually is. And if you guys take issue with it, you need to somehow um, simplify, uh, a de not, not deregulate, but more appropriately regulate accreditation. Or, you know, so like go to the source of the issue, which is actually outside of the state. And so kind of bugs me when, North Dakota state government is like shaved down a bit, but we're still struggling with the federal expectations and there's no getting around that. You know, the workers may be liberal conservative, the voters may be liberal conservative, but it doesn't matter. Nobody can get away from these demands on our time. So you right. have to pay for them. Go lobby Congress if you, you know. <laughs> I Here's a question on, on, on stuff like that, where it is a federal mandate, how much of the federal mandate stuff is tied to money that the legislature decides to take because it's a matching fund situation where they get $3 for every dollar they stick in. But now the entire, the, the, the regulatory structure to manage that program, the cost is actually more than the money that they get from the feds. You know, how many how many situations are like that? You know, I have to say that I am not sure because the scope of my knowledge of government is um, I don't have a ton of breadth. I feel like I have that kind of intellectual depth with education agencies, but I don't have the breadth of knowing what really goes on in ag you know, or what really goes on in some other domain of government that's really like transportation very well, far. How, how about just in education? Where I you know, think in education, we're mostly benefiting from the arrangement. I think in, uh, in education, we there's a, a really great savings that we're receiving. Um, but it may be, you know, there may be costs and things that I happen to be unaware of that I'm not putting into my equation. But there is monetary benefit to jumping through these hoops because sometimes the penalties are quite severe um, at, or, or they're just they're severe on a tiny campus like a little community college just cannot handle some of these. Uh, fees because they they could literally mean that 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 fee of the federal government means someone gets laid off like quite literally, um, so that's what I've seen. I've seen a financial benefit, but of course, you know, I mean, if we were to decide, you know, what we're going to take the hit because we want to prioritize differently, there's just going to be have have to be some really thoughtful study and policy making. And I just see so many people, as you know, I feel this way, like just lazy policy making, not any interest in actually doing the real work. And so 
as much as I'm as a person open to change, I'm very nervous about changing the status quo here because I'm not sure anyone's ready to do the real work to usher in our alternative universe that actually works really well for us. Yeah, because, you know, 15 years ago, when, when I was running numbers on education, the, the federal government was providing 18% of our entire K-12 budget. Now it's like eight and a half percent. And, and so, you know, back when it was 18, there was a contingent of people that wanted to try to figure out how to get off of the federal uh, money so that we would, we would be able to, you know, kick some of those regulations. And the, I believe that at that time, the figure was that, yes, we'd lose 18% of the funding, but some, somewhere around half of that was just going right back out the door, complying with the federal, federal regs. And if you don't take the federal money, you can have a better case to not deal with the federal regs better. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's, I think that everybody agrees that the biggest problem is the federal government. And part of the problem there is that, you know, we send every state wants the federal government to bail them out at the same time that their, their senators and congressmen, you know, go around railing against the federal government. It's, it's a, you know, double standard issue, but, you know, there's at some point the state and, and a, a, a education department should should offer up to the public a breakdown of how much of the money, how much of their entire spending is complying with federal regulations, how much of the federal money that comes in is is voluntarily paid out to comply with those regulations how many regulations could we uh, legally dispense of if we were willing to give up the money you know a report like that would be especially out of dpi would be awesome like that that would be um that would be very useful for legislators to, to really see because they're they're told oh well we took them this money 20 years ago and we can't get out of this program well, I always say, well, that's a, that's the number one reason not to take the federal matching in the first place, because, yeah, you're, you're getting money on the front side, but on the back side, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot more. Uh, breaking those dynamics down is something that agencies are really bad at, because when they go to legislature, they've got their hand out and they don't they're not really good at explaining how the policies and federal uh, programs that they've promoted in the past have actually contributed to their own lack of funding. I think there's a lot of, I guess, a dearth of policy wonks. And I just think it's not really normalized to think in that way. I think there's a lot of, and this is a very general statement. This is not about state workers in or you know public sector workers in particular just a lot of status quo bias that is um it's not a human universal i mean not everyone really defaults that way but a heck of a lot of people do and they're like oh things are this way because they're supposed to be um we just assume it about all kinds of stuff and um and someone who says hmm 
maybe it shouldn't be this way almost always is um, gonna ignite the frustration of somebody. And so it, you know, suggesting and a different approach is a lot of times very psychologically and socially difficult. Um, and I, yeah, so I think that it's, it's the th outside the box thinking that is not consistently rewarded in our society and our communities. And so it's not so shocking that people aren't employing it in a situation where it would be highly beneficial. I think it's, you know, to me, sometimes the federal government's expectations encourage a kind of narrow focus on compliance and less focus on reality. And, you know, we, so this is true of all higher ed that is, you know, flagged as legitimate by the federal government. Um, you have a sort of snapshot date for year enrollment um, in the fall. And then you later, tra you, you're tracking those people and you see uh, who is retained over a time, who graduates on a you know, certain timeline, within that timeline. And of course though, that snapshot in time of your enrollment, it, there is a degree of arbitrariness to it. I mean, is it the first day that classes start? Is it the one, you know, 50th day that classes started. I, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little, but the, that wiggle room is enormously influential. And, and so by choosing it, then it's like, oh, that's our denominator. And, you know, there's not a lot of imagination about how the, that selection of the denominator changes our understanding. And like, I think that maybe, I, on the one hand, I, I support what the feds are going for. They're trying to increase accountability and make schools transparent about their graduation rates. But I think that there's kind of the sociological phenomenon as, well, maybe you should be tracking students from day one, tracking all of them and seeing how all of them turn out and not just making these like vague numbers, you know, or just getting pumped through your system. Um, because I find that retention and graduation statistics look extremely different from what we're often told if we actually count the entire semester or something like that. Um, and so I think I, I find sometimes the government structure to uh, constrain creativity and there are people who don't like the way that I, you know, suggest thinking outside the box with these particular retention and graduation statistics. But I don't know if in the absence of any federal presence, a state would even care to look at this at all. Like would a state actually keep hired accountable in this way without federal intervention? I'm not sure, honestly. Uh, what do you guys think? I don't know either. I think, um, I think, oh, go ahead, I think that's, um, I think that's, a, that's a big conversation and we'd have to talk about assumptions first of the role of education as well as um, the goals of federal government and state government you know m maybe the way higher ed is structured there should be a lot more trade schools and a lot less um, schools the way that they're set up now there's there's a lot of a lot of things that probably should be re-examined especially in light of if I want to learn a trade I can learn it faster watching YouTube videos than I would going to school. And, the, and generally those who teach, as I was a teacher for years, are the ones who can't do. 
So the best the best filmmakers <laughs> are making films. They're not sitting in film class talking about making films. Um, and this goes for so many other things. Or they'd be paid and they'd be paid so darn well. There's no way they'd be a teacher in America. That, that might be different in Switzerland, where ten years ago I was offered a starting salary of over a hundred grand. Where at the same time in North Dakota the starting salary was like twenty some grand. So they have a very smart culture because their teachers have a highest status and everybody wants to be part of it here. Teaching is the last thing you'd want to do. And you make 10 times more money doing whatever it is you want to do instead of talking about that thing. So I think there's a lot of conversations that would have to be assessed here with goals of, of education, higher ed, and whether it's relevant to the modern world. Yeah. But um, I noticed we are at the three, three twelve or three thirteen minute mark here, and I got to be getting to a, an, another thing pretty soon. Um, yeah. Jim. So that's just kind of my closing thought. That's great. That's a great prompt. Um, I would say, yeah, we haven't uh, really re-examined the educational model in a while, and with the way technology is kind of. Uh, accelerating every everyone's lives i think it's due we're overdue for a re-evaluation of what um what education should be accomplishing as you were talking about that um i was re reminded of uh the gizmodo article i sent you uh, about the lignite energy council's um k through 12 education program <laughs> education in quote quotation marks um for uh teachers in north dakota and other states to teach them about coal the importance of coal. And um, I, our state government has made that determination that that's an important part of the curriculum to, uh, to, to feed our teachers coal propaganda uh, and to feed our students coal propaganda throughout the uh, 12 or so years they're in school in North Dakota and in other states too. It's not just North Dakota, it's Minnesota, Wyoming, lots of different schools. Uh, lots of different states are using these educational materials provided by the Lignite Energy Council. And uh, the next training is next week uh, at BSC, if anyone wants to drop in and see what they're telling them these days. Um, I, I'm kind of interested in going and just seeing what, what they're telling the, the teachers. And I would hope our teachers know enough to be able to see through it, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, my checkout thoughts here, since we are over time, um, we, we, have, we didn't have a chance to talk about perhaps the two biggest stories, uh, national stories this week. Um, the first is uh, a, a kind of... Um, uh, a document dump from who knows who um, to ProPublica showing that the how, how the 25 richest Americans have been um, getting away from paying their taxes. I thought that was a pretty interesting story. Um, lots of of the billionaire class have been able to go multi years without paying any um, income taxes. We're talking about Warren Buffett, um, Bezos, Elon Musk, all the big guys. Um, and just amazing a ways that they're able to to shift around their wealth in a way that makes it look like they've earned no income and so don't, or haven't earned enough income to pay taxes. It's just amazing what um, what they're able to to pull off with the, the right kind of tax attorney or um, accountant accountant, while the rest of us are you know struggling to um, to pay the, those um, taxes. So, I thought that was interesting. Um, I think that we still need to have a big um, reevaluation of tax policy in America, make it easier, simpler. Um, I'd love to put a, put out of business all the accountants <laughs> uh, just by making a simpler tax code. 
uh, so we don't have to go use accountants and there are no loopholes that rich people can use to, to exploit the system and the bureaucracy. And um, reminds me of what Ellie was talking about, how the bureaucracy takes away our, our creativity. It takes it away, but it also gives it back to the, the creative rule breakers are the people that know how to game the system in the bureaucracy. And that's exactly what the, these billionaire, billionaire classes are doing. And then the other thing uh, that I came out this week is it's the last, the last episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Uh, not, my, not my favorite show. I, I, I don't know if I've even watched a full episode, but it's been on, on the air for 20 whole years. And uh, that's crazy. That's crazy. It's also kind of a, a good cultural touchstone for the last 20 years. I think um, lots, lots of things have, have changed. <laughs> um, and, and I'm not one of the people that really kind of bashes on the Kardashians. I think they're actually talented and good at what they're doing. Um, and they do provide value um, to, to their fans and, and their their uh, customers. Um, but it's, you know, an interesting commentary on the, the state of things in America that that show is on for 20 years and now it's ending. And um, I'm going to challenge the rest of the checkouters to, to name their favorite Kardashian uh, because I actually had to look up to see how many how many Kardashians are there on that show? And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to tell you I've got the amount here. It's Chloe, Kylie, Chris, Courtney, Kim, Kendall, and obviously Caitlyn, and Rob, Rob Kardashian. And I'd have to say either Rob is my favorite Kardashian because uh, I don't know what his deal is, but he's somehow distanced himself from everyone else is different. So I, I always go for the black sheep of the family. I think Rob is the black sheep. But if I had to pick one of the female Kardashians. I think I'm going to go with my favorite as being Courtney. She's a, she's a good middle sister, I think. And with that, <laughs> name your favorite Kardashian. I, I have no basis of knowledge for <laughs> the Kardashians. I don't think that I've ever watched a minute of the show. I've probably seen clips and then turned the channel, but I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't differentiate one from the other to you, uh, other than uh, the fact that uh, it, it looks to me like uh, uh, Caitlyn Jenner might be the next governor of California. I know. I know. <laughs> that would be something. Yikes. I do not like any of them, but I, <laughs> um, I suppose if I have to choose one, I will go with the one who engages in the least amount of cultural appropriation. And that's that like tall, slender one. And I don't normally, you know, I'm not normally trying to reward the skinny girl, but I mean, she does less of the <laughs> cultural appropriation of uh, black aesthetics. Like she does less black fishing, like, you know, like changing her color scone in uh, t color tone in photos or wearing black hairstyles or like styling her hair as if it has the texture of a black woman's hair and like all that stuff. Like she does that less than all the rest of them. And she hasn't, I also, I don't, I, I'm gonna be really honest with you guys. I do not like like skinny women appropriating big butts with plastic surgery and all that jazz. I feel like we liberate, liberate women more by actually having, you know, naturally thick women get to you know, step out into the spotlight and be accepted in their natural state. So I also feel like they appropriate booties from women who had them naturally. So I don't like that. And so at least the tall skinny one isn't trying to look like a biracial black woman. It isn't trying to pretend like she was born with a big butt. So she's the least problem. Although she did that stupid 
Pepsi law enforcement commercial, which was totally inappropriate. That was a different um, form of appropriation. So you're one of the Kylie, one of the uh, Jenner sisters is what some one of them is the one. Maybe you're, you're talking. and they're younger, so there's more opportunity perhaps for uh, a better path. Like I don't like aristocracy, including the you know bourgeois kind. So anyway, they they annoy me quite a bit. And I, at one point, <laughs> I had engineered my uh, browser to to change the word Kardashian to Ellie, have you had a drink of water lately? Cause I was like really bad about <laughs> hydrating myself. And that way, anytime social media or just the internet in general, tried to tell me something about the Kardashians, it just became a reminder to me to drink more water. And that was good. And it was cause they, I was so oversaturated with them. They were so inescapable that I needed like my browser to like be less Kardashian-ish. But I did want to check out with one other thought, which is that <laughs> it, it is the following. You know, serving the needs of low-income students and special education students and students for whom English is a second language and in our state, Native students, and then some other states, um, Hispanic and Black students, meeting their needs is not going to be profitable for a really long time. So, I mean, we're just not going to be able to have a relationship with the federal government in which we are meeting those needs. Um, where sticking to ourselves and just going on our own state revenue is going to do the work. I think there are some government programs, particularly with uh, equity issues related to actual like survival and viability in the economy and just actually being prepared for adulthood, these really crucial services. I think that they're just not gonna be profitable. We have to take the money from the feds. Um, and if we only relied on the state, we would just have legislators who would obliterate it and then just leave generations of children in poverty. So, I mean, or like a large amount of the generation of each generation of children in poverty. And I can't really stomach that. So I think I'm all for these interesting government efficiency techniques, but we have to also recognize that there are some services that the state would find one excuse or another not to serve depending on what's politically popular. And just because a lot of people don't wanna meet the needs of poor children doesn't mean we shouldn't meet their needs. So we gotta take some federal funding and I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave it up to your average North Dakota voter to be able to vote away or something, whether or not we meet the needs of lower income children in the state, because I don't, I don't trust a lot of people on that issue. Here, here, Ellie. That's a great point. Um, and I, I agree with you. Some of the, my reticence to removing federal funding would be that um, then we're, <laughs> we're subject to local control only, which uh, is good and bad, uh, depending on who that local control is. And so it, it is good to have a system of, of checks and balances to a, a certain degree. And, you know, that's what the federal government supposedly is doing is um, um, providing um, individual basic human rights across the, a very wide ranging populace and um, geographic territory. And uh, that's important. And if you remove some of that, then you run the risk of not having those things in place in certain loca localities. And uh, that's not that's not good. Um, also, I did not realize that there was booty appropriation happening Ellie, I, the Kardashian, I have not been keeping up with the Kardashians to that extent. And I did not, is that a thing? Are you telling oh, me that there's yes. that I, a thing? Look, I was a thin, a thin girl with the booty growing up in an era where being skinny, 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 skinny was what was normative. So like I went through the like very awkward <laughs> phase of being well in white culture, let's be clear in black culture, booty has been uh, loved for a very long time. 
And, you know, it's, well, I mean, Latino culture. Too, you know I mean? taught us. Yes. Like, so a lot, of, a lot of cultures have appreciated booty for a long time, but white people are a little bit new to the party. Uh, and I know because like other girls like police each other's body shapes and sizes and fat distributions and shit like that. And I would like, you know, that's the irony is like not only not many dudes have been rude to me about my shape. Actually, a lot of girls have thought been though and it was terrible and so now i know like these women who were really skinny a few years ago are suddenly like really thick it's a joke and we've had thick women and i mean there's obviously i'm kind of petite there's women who are much bigger who are now suddenly getting some uh inclusion some acceptance into the mainstream and not constantly like i mean think about in movies there were only really thin women cast in movies for many years starting in the late 90s early 2000s i mean it was just really constrained so now that we can be thicker i would like to see women who that is who they are naturally not women who are naturally skinny who then decided to get a lot of work done and that's definitely what's happening 100 percent um just like you know now that you know it you'll see it it'll start to stand out to you like <laughs> oh i've seen it before shapes. okay i've seen it before well, but what i i mean here here's my naive naivete here i thought they were just doing like special exercises special workouts you know a special move uh that builds muscle in a certain area <laughs> i mean i mean, I mean yes, isn't that possible that no you that helps but you have to have fat grafting like you like you can work out stuff and it helps a little bit but there is no like you know your build is your build and it's in our dna like how we store fat and how we how we regulate hormones that store fat and where it's where it's stored and so these they're getting fat grafting from like so they're getting a fat distribution that didn't occur to them naturally and those of us who it did occur to naturally were like policed for it and now it's like oh cool like you guys are the ones who finally like get to celebrate booty when it was like not coming to you naturally and, and they would have been considered approved you know what i mean like they they would have been under the radar and not policed um it's man it's a real thing and like most women and girls have body issues because of things like this. Although I think right. that the, the younger generations are actually getting a little bit better, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. It's like um, economic re- redistribution, but for fat. So it's how I'm going to think about it, <laughs> but, but it's the, it's the rich people that get to do it. Not the poor people. Um, yeah, I think so, most guys would move, move some from their stomachs and their guts to their to their rear and their thighs if they could. <laughs> a lot of men, I mean, that makes sense to me, but a lot of men don't even think that they should attend to their bodies at all, which is like this other strange thing that, well, either men are obsessed with their size and they're like, it's like a really big part of their identity or they like neglect themselves entirely. That's what it looks like from a woman's point of view. <laughs> Yeah, wow. that's pretty much it. Wow. No middle ground there. 